Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. <laughs> okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm going to have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids. Don't you lie to me. Okay, let's hear that story. Let's start interviewing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your host, Jeff Bell, along with our producer, Warren Hicks. With this podcast, we're exploring the visual art scene in North Carolina by bringing you interviews with artists and arts professionals throughout the state. We also want to highlight some current exhibitions that we think you should check out. In today's episode, we're honored to talk with photographer, musician, and arts educator Harrison Haynes. You can check out Harrison's work during or after the interview on his website, harrisonhaynes.com. You can also find links and examples of his work on our website, don'tyoulietome.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our Twitter feed is at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C. Enjoy. The following podcast contains adult language. Oh, I like that. Previously on Don't You Lie to Me. All right, let's do this. <laughs> if you th- the bit, mm. Have we started recording, Mark? We'll just start with like a hey, the hey there, or the hey, hey there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, well, I should learn how periods work. Uh, who, who, uh, or a lot of palate jacking going on. And that takes place in my living room every night of the week. Bullshit. <laughs> Way to go, Warren. Fuck you. If you please don't, don't please. I'm pulling this out of my rear end at this very instant. Shit. So I, I, it's, it's not, 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 maybe. Oh, I've always heard people say, Your butt might get wet. No way. Oh, yes. Hello, hello. Do, do you, um, uh, um, but, uh, um, I was probably just going to start peeing my pants or something. Mm-hmm. That's my dream. All right. Uh, it, and it's now I am. You're smart ass. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Um, people call me dickweed and I'm okay with whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you won an award for being the most Jesus like in summer camp. Close. Most Christ like. Oh, well, that's even yeah, better. Yeah. Hey, Jeff Bell. Hey, Warren Hicks. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm always here. There's a rumor going around that you're not working at 21C anymore. True. I enjoyed my wonderful time at 21C, but I am now the executive director of the Vala Simpson Whirly Gig Park and Museum in Wilson, North Carolina. Well, that's pretty exciting. It is very exciting. I've loved his work for a long time. And it's pretty cool to be a part of what's going on there. So these whirly gigs you're talking about, are these like the pinwheels you buy at Walmart and stick into your lawn? Oh, no, Warren, no. These are massive uh, metal objects made by Vala Simpson. They're huge and they are up in the air and they move with the wind. Beautiful things. You said these are large whirly gigs. What's the average height? Most of them are on posts between 30 and 40 feet tall. And then the whirly gigs themselves can be anywhere from 10 to... 40 or 50 feet in width. Whoa. Oh, yes. And you used to go there as a kid. 
I did. We would drive over from Goldsboro to check them out at Vallis's farm. Now they've been going through conservation, and there will be 30 huge whirly gigs outside in a city park in downtown Wilson. And that will open November 2nd. So I heard there used to be a nickname for this place when you were a kid. We always used to call it Acid Park. We would go out there and turn our headlights on. Uh, they're covered with reflectors, and so you would see them uh, really kind of light up at nighttime. Uh, when the park officially opens, there will be a lighting component that will sort of light up all of the whirly gigs, which would be pretty cool to see. Can't wait to get out there and see it. Please come on out. We will officially open the park on November 2nd, so check out our website and our Facebook page. Our website is Wilson Whirly Gig Park. Org. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And I heard some news about you. Did you move your studio? Well, yes, I did. I am no longer at Golden Belt after nine years. Whoa. Whoa. And someone else took you in? Yes, Alicia Lang at Spectre Arts. We like her. Oh, we love her. She gave me a beautiful studio in the back of the gallery. You should check it out. You can find out more at spectrearts.org. That's S-P- E-C-T-R-E arts.org. Can I still come by and drink all of your booze? Well, you won't be the only one. Wonderful. Hey, everybody, mark your calendars. On August 3rd, Don't You Lie to Me, we'll be recording live from the North Carolina Museum of Arts Auditorium as part of ArtCast. It will be a change-up from our regular format. I'll be interviewing four artists that are participating in NCMA's Monster Drawing Rally, which takes place on August 25th. Jen Dassel, host of the Art Curious podcast, will be joining in on the fun as well. You're all invited. Tickets are free, but there is limited seating. Come watch me and Warren fumble our way through a live event. If that's not enticing enough, there will be food trucks, cash bar, and music. Go to our website for links on both events, don'tyoulietome.com, or you can go to ncartmuseum.org slash calendar slash events. Please come out and see us. Hey, Kelly McChesney. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Kelly is here. She's going to tell us about Lump Gallery in Raleigh. Tell us about Lump Gallery in Raleigh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Lump Gallery has been uh, around since 1996. It's it a was, long time. It is a long time. And it was started by uh, Bill Thielen and Med Bird. Mm-hmm. And Bill Thielen kind of started it as his studio and then opened up the other side. There's two sides of the, the space that they own mm-hmm. and opened up the other side for exhibitions. Mm-hmm. And so it was really kind of a forward-thinking project space that they invited their friends and people that they admired into to kind of do experimental projects or show their work. Um, And a lot of times it was artists that um, the normal art market wouldn't pay as close attention to or the traditional art market. Mm -hmm. So they were really kind of advanced for this area, I would say. Oh, I think so. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, they've they've been doing it for 20 years. So Bill finally decided to um, take a step back and focus on his own artwork and and some different projects and curatorial projects. So I took over Lump um, in January. January, and we made it a nonprofit space, and um, we're going forward with its new vision. And hopefully, it will have roots with with what they started, but it will definitely change. And I'm I'm still figuring that out. What's the new vision? I I think that uh, we are trying to you know we're, as we are nonprofit right now, um, we're going to focus more on um, trying to be more inclusive. Um, be more collaborative. So now that we're a nonprofit space, kind of the doors have opened for collaboration where 
that wasn't possible before. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, we're uh, working with Patty Johnson from Art F City in, in New York to come down here and do a lecture and a series of workshops, art writing workshops, because we're trying to stimulate the um, the art writers here in the area. And oh, we'd be cool. working maybe with UNC or some other universities to do that. Um, also, we're working on a panel discussion on art and tech, and we're able to work with different corporations, universities, and nonprofits on that as well. So it just, it, it, um, I think it's just going to be a more collaborative lump. And you got some good news recently. Yes. And what would that be? We recently uh, found out that we were awarded the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts um, Programming Grant. And so that means that they uh, supply us with programming funds for the next two years. Oh, I like that. Yes, it's um, good. That's exciting. I know. I, I'm very, very excited. Um, I recently did the the budget, though, and found out that, that um, those funds go very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is for programming, so it's, it's mainly for artist projects. Um, and we typically do more. I don't know, we do a lot of projects because we still try and do monthly exhibitions, but we tend to do 16 exhibitions in the space, plus now we're adding on lecture series and workshops, so um, it still goes fast, but it's very helpful. Now, how can a person support LUMP? Um, support for us it can be happen in many different ways. You can um, do in-kind donations. You can volunteer. Uh, our interns are very important to us because they help us run the space um, so we don't have to pay for staff because we do not have paid staff at the moment. Mm-hmm. And then also... Um, donations are wonderful or any kind of financial sponsorship or support would be great. Um, We definitely need that. And where is Lump located? We're in Raleigh. Um, We're at 505 South Blunt Street in Raleigh, right next to the Lincoln Memorial uh, Baptist Church and across the street from the Lincoln Theater. So we have quite a mix of of different businesses around. Mm -hmm. And what is the normal sort of hours that I can go and look at things? We just expanded. Oh, right. And so we now are open three days a week. And I know that seems small, but we're Thursday through Saturday from 12 to 6 p.m. And on First Fridays or any events, we're usually open later. But First Fridays, we're typically open from 6 to 10 p.m. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Oh, and anytime. No, you can't any, break in. Any anytime. No, uh-uh. <laughs> anytime um, we're available by appointment, too. Where can I find out about Lump online? Our new website is lumpprojects.org, but you can also visit us at our old site, which is teamlump.org. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, Harrison Haynes. Jeff Bell. Hi. <laughs> How are you Am I doing? Allowed, do I acknowledge that guy also? Uh, always always uh, be nice to Warren, but also be a little mean to Warren. Okay. I've known you for several years now. We're going to get yes. right on into the interview. Good. And when I was thinking about this ahead of time, there's so many sort of Harrison branches. Yeah. And we're going to talk about Branch Gallery. Oh, good. I didn't really know where to start, so I'm going to kind of start when you were a kid oh, good. in Chapel Hill. Yes. And what that was about like i have no i have no vision of what chapel hill was at that time when in eastern north carolina where i was if we went out of town we would go to like raleigh or greenville like i had no conception of chapel hill right that wasn't your town that you went to no oh wow okay so what was happening there what was going on was it the mean streets (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny because you know driving out here today i was basically driving to my dad's house like it's a small town, and so there isn't, yeah. there aren't many of the roads in this town that don't immediately conjure tons of memories. So, um, my dad and my mom, when I was, until I was like ten, 
uh-huh. both lived in really rural parts of this area. So I, my mom was living in nor- northwest Durham, and my dad was living out here, and I was living a week with my dad and a week with my mom. Wow. Like my whole, until I went to college, basically. So even though you lived half the time in Durham, you were you were in Chapel Hill schools, right? Uh, actually, I went to Carolina Friends School. Okay, which was in Durham for most of the like elementary school days. Were you you were interested in art and music like as a teenager, or was there like one that felt like oh this is oh, what yeah. I'm all about? If you want to jump to teenager? Yes, yeah. yeah. So that so teenager for me, you know, or whatever that is, adolescence or like getting into stuff, you right. know, that started when I when my mom moved to Chapel Hill. And she was living in a neighborhood closer to, like, Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill. Yeah. And that was literally my first experience with suburban culture. So, yeah, I went to Ephesus Elementary, and that was, like, mind-blowing in terms of, like, different kinds of kids, different kinds of, like, trendy things, like commodity competition that I wasn't privy to prior to that. It was very intimidating and also kind of, like, sexy in a way, you know, like, really exotic to me. And my mom lived in a neighborhood with, like, other kids, which was completely new to me, too. Uh. So, yeah. All, so, around 11, 12, it was, like, breakdancing, skateboarding, punk rock, rap, right. TV, cable, <laughs> all those things, like, all at once. So, n- n- no cable before that time? No. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it was kind of like a real heavy data dump, you know? Right. I moved in next door to a kid my mom said, oh, you should go a couple doors down. There's there's another kid exactly your age. I said, great. So I walked into this kid's yard, yeah. and the grass was like chest high. <laughs> it was like a cute little suburban house, and all the other houses had mowed lawns, right. and this house had, had chest high grass. <laughs> so I, I wandered up to the house, and before I got there, I saw like peeking up over the edge of the grass, raising up and down was like a barbell. Like weights, right. you know, <laughs> like coming out of the grass right. and coming back down. And um, that was how I met my friend Edward Tyndall. And, um, was he the one pumping iron? He was pumping iron, yeah. He was, he was, he was getting ripped. <laughs> um, he's a really amazing guy. I'm still in touch with him. And um, I kind of credit him, I suppose, in some ways for turning me on to punk rock. He was really interested in what punk rock was all about. He and I sort of started going up to Franklin Street after school. And then eventually our parents would let us go to Franklin Street on the weekends. Mm. They would drop us off right. in front of Barrel of Fun video arcade. <laughs> and they'd give us five bucks and they'd pick us up at like 10 or whatever. Right. Um, Did you learn some things? Did you see some things? We, we saw some things and we learned some things. I have very permissive parents on uh-huh. both sides. Edward had a single mom and she just didn't have time to yeah. like really scrutinize what was going on with Edward. And Edward was way more precocious and naughty than I was. <laughs> I've always been a pretty cautious person. But yeah, so Edward wanted to know everything about the world. Right. <laughs> and he wanted, I don't know if I jumped on the bandwagon or if he dragged me with him. But right. So yeah, in a, in a very short, young period of time, we learned about a lot of things. And right. we were hanging out with older, punker, or like weirdo, freak guys on girls on Franklin Street. Guys on girls? Guys guys and girls on Franklin Street and girls on guys. And, yeah. Um, and it was like a whole, you know, monster manual of like <laughs> cool and crazy weird right. folks. Now, how uh, how difficult was it as a kid to get in and see bands and stuff at that time? Right. So there were no options 
proper because you had Rhythm Alley and Cat's Cradle and all those, and they were all, at that time it was 18, was the drinking age, so it was still 18 and up, and we were 12. Right. But there was an amazing opportunity for us to see bands, which we learned about through word of mouth, you know, before too long, which was called The Turning Point. And The Turning Point was like a street access commercial garage space. Right. This guy, he was British, his name was Brian, and he would open the garage door, and on Sundays, he would let bands play. Uh-huh. And it basically became like a hardcore matinee. Yeah. So like bands from Raleigh and Greensboro and Winston-Salem and Chapel Hill and Durham would all come to play these like free punk shows on in the in the day on Sundays. So you would just walk up there and there it yeah. was. Yeah. That's crazy. So we would see anti-scene, corrosion of conformity, um, a number of things, those local bands, and then touring bands would come through like no FX. <laughs> Fang, like all these like kind of... And they would come to this? It would be between shows and they would find out about it and go play. That's crazy. And it was like a real weird scene. Like that was pretty mind-blowing, pretty amazing. So so you, you were seeing these bands and is that when you said, I, I want to start doing this kind of thing? I'm really bad at chronology yeah. in my life. But um, so I don't know what happened first. I think before that, because I remember when we saw Corrosion of Conformity, we knew who they were. So I think this is what happened. Um, There was this guy, this real loose cannon, um, asshole kind of 'er ne'er-do-well guy called Dennis. I don't think he had a last name. He was just called Dennis. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And um, he uh, was selling all his records one day, you know, on the street, just like on Franklin Street. Yeah. And so Edward and I bought a bunch of his records. We bought um, the exploited... Let's have a war. Yeah. Bought the Repo Man soundtrack. <laughs> uh, and No Future, which was like a compilation of like British punk bands, mm-hmm. which is like a really rare collectible really? record oh, now, wow. I realized. Um, and so we went back to Edward's house and listened to all the records and just like, we're like, we got to know about all this stuff. Right. And so then, and then the other records we bought at that time were the first Suicidal Tendencies record, GBH, City Babies Attacked by Rats, and Agnostic Front, Victim in Pain. Mm-hmm. And so those were the records we just like listened to over and over and over and over and over again. Right. And we had no context, really. Yeah. No, you know, we like re- inferred into those things all this mythology and oh, sure. culture. But at this time you weren't yet playing music or? No, we were 12. Yeah. Um, we were by far the youngest people in that. <laughs> In that world? In that social group. I and mean, we, we weren't, I'm sure we weren't considered in that social group by anyone except ourselves. We were right. like little kids trying to, I don't know what people thought of us. It was really right. fascinating to think about that. You know, it's something primal that when you're that age and you're interested in music, you're like, dude, we need to start a band. Right. Let's do this. Like, what are you going to play? Like, yeah. you know, and it's not based on like what you actually can play. It's like <laughs> right. someone someone always says like, well, I'll be the guitarist, you know, or I'll be the singer. Yeah. It's like, my dad plays the drums. So that was a pretty natural path for me. Yeah. When I was my dad got me drum lessons from Christmas when I was 11. Wow. So I started taking drum lessons and Edward started taking bass lessons. Eventually we started a band, but it was a year or so. It was, you know, I don't know how time works. Yeah, it was right. like it might have been 6 months later, might have been 2 years later. <laughs> right. Yeah, but our first band was called Scabies. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so here is where another good friend of mine comes into the picture, so Al Burian, one of my oldest friends, I got to know around that same time. He was older. He's two years older, which at that time That's is like huge. crazy. You know? Yeah, why, like, is, why is that happening? It's like a 
fully legal adult at that point, you know. Um, and Al was like very worldly, you know. He had lived in Italy and he lived in Germany, mm. and um, he knew about like culture in a way that was like yeah. well beyond. So then we, you know, after Edward and I would listen to our our shitty little records in his bedroom, we would like we would all go to Al's house and he would like tell us how it was. And he and then he was like, you gotta listen to Bad Brains, you gotta listen to Dead yeah. Kennedys, and then like so when we so Edward and Al and I got together, and and that was Scabies. And um, and of course named by Al, which we didn't know what the fuck Scabies was. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, you know, at that point, I was learning. I was taking drum lessons, and so the kind of drums I was learning was not like adding up with the kind of drums that I was being asked or like feeling like I should play based on the kind of music we were trying sure, to emulate. Right. So I was like, you know, the first drum beat I learned was Billie Jean, and you know, Billie Jean like times four speed wise is like what right i honestly i wasn't very inspired by punk rock drumming at that time i could see that and i, I mean, know there's like a kind of there's obviously like i'm not saying it's it's a, a lesser right kind of drumming because i can't you know it's, listen bad rains like that dude, i can't play drums i, I like don't that. know I, I don't know how people maintain no, that God, yeah <laughs> right it's funny, and I haven't really thought about this, or I didn't really come to terms with this late till later. But like that kind of drumming, I wasn't real good at it, and I couldn't get really excited about it. But right. I knew that I loved being in the band, and I knew I loved that stuff. Right. So uh, when when does art come in? I, I mean, I guess everyone draws when they're little kids and that sort of thing. But when did you? When did it feel like something that you really wanted to get into? Well, I think meeting Al was a, a major seismic event in terms of art. To backtrack, my dad taught film animation oh, right. at UNC for most of my childhood. So I was privileged to be in a kind of a pre-existing environment of art. My dad was right. showing me a lot of art. And in, when he wasn't showing it to me, I was looking at his Zap Comics, Arkham, Heavy Metal Magazine. Really? Um, so yeah, he was he was into a lot of like underground art. Right. And high art. So he was really into Piero della Francesca and like, you know, Venetian Italian Renaissance painters. And that's the gamut right there. You've, you've yeah, gone from one to the exactly. other. Exactly. <laughs> you go from Piero della Francesca to Titian to Mobius <laughs> right. in one fell swoop. So I had that as a foundation. And my dad wasn't pushing it down my throat. Yeah. It was there and, I, and, and it was pretty compelling to me. Right. Um, especially at this age when we're talking about. Arkham and Mobius, which right. was like pretty X-rated, R-rated stuff. Sure. You know what I mean? So it, it also had like a kind of cool appeal, like, yeah. you know, naughty, you know, not supposed to be looking at that type stuff. Right. So anyway, but when I met Al, Al was is a really gifted artist. Uh -huh. um, he drew comic books. He was really into comic books. And he was just drawing all the time. He was just always drawing. And he was so amazing at drawing. Since he had such a specific set of influences, like he knew what he wanted to draw. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Like he sure. he nailed down his inspiration, which was like Frank Miller, Jack Kirby, and like a couple of other comic artists. So he, he kind of had a lot, of, a really nice set of parameters within which to operate. Yeah. And so I was really, I was so intimidated by that. Like I think in some ways that was, you know, I, I definitely wasn't like, oh, I want to be an artist. I was like, shit, man, Al... <laughs> that dude is an amazing artist. Like I could never, you right. know, but you know, if, if you look at the grand scheme of things, I'm sure some synapse wiggled. Yeah. 
at that time. And so he and so by hanging out with Al, I was being shown and I was seeing a lot of art that was really cool. Yeah. Comic books mostly at that time. I think just because I one, it was the time, like growing up where I did. I didn't even I don't even think I knew like art schools existed. Oh yeah, I didn't. And either. I certainly didn't have like uh someone around me to say like, "Hey, you really like art. Why don't you like pursue art?" You know what I mean? Of course I and know. And so like when I hear about when I meet people like you that went to a legit art school, like a school for art, I'm like, "How do people even know about that kind of thing back then?" I mean, now of course you would it's easy to find out things, but but yeah, it was I mean like at this point we're a ways off from any sense of identity that would lead me to understand how to pursue art. Right. Cuz at, at this point to me what art was was th- something in books, something in museums. Uh-huh. My dad took me to a lot of museums and then something in comic books and then the, like my perception of the way that Al was working with it. I guess probably what the only logical connection I could make is like oh he would be a comic book artist. Uh-huh. And that had some kind of you know, there there was some industry right, in you place. Could, like, you could oh, potentially here's a comic. Do Someone, this. and I'm, I guess my dad and Al, people that was influenced by, were also the people that made sure to point out to know the name of the person. You aren't just into X Men. You're into the X Men like by by Jack Kirby, or right. you're into New Mutants by John Byrne, or like you're into you know like right, specific right. artists. Right. Sure. And the same, I guess it's the beginnings of a kind of sensibility of like liner notes. Yeah. And so that is a good segue to talk about the other major influence of visual art, which was record album covers. Oh, yeah. Right? Because, you know, we were of an age where we were looking at 12-inch by 12-inch pieces of artwork, especially when you're talking about the kind of music that I'm talking about being involved in. We're we're pushing something always. We're trying to, like, you know, make up new kinds of art, make up edgy art, art that was... Um, provocative and yeah. controversial and all those things. So, like, the artists that I was really became interested in via Al in the artists that were working with the bands, like Pusshead. Right. I mean, it's it's a it's a different thing to to think about because inherently, I mean, I think everybody that listened to a record sat there and looked at the record cover. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. potentially reading the lyrics. Yes. Or who the band members are. I mean, it was a thing. It was like an accompaniment. It, it was a multidisciplinary it. experience. Right. And so over time, of course, we've um, moved further and further away from that, but it was uh, super influential in a lot of people's lives. And it was, yeah. it was so, that was so connected to the music itself. It wasn't like the secondary yes. cover for a thing. I Absolutely. mean, people were making some, <laughs> some crazy shit. Hell yeah. Yeah. I'd be surprised if there isn't some deep connection between the kinds of visual and auditory associations that we are making between a still image and a musical experience right. that exercised some muscle of association versus music videos or later where things are more expository. They're more explained and they're more right. illustrative. Right. Because like... When you're looking at, for instance, like Bad Brains, Rock for Light, you know, like you've got the cover, which is like the Capitol building being struck by lightning. And then you have like some photographs inside and some words. But like the music is so overwhelmingly compelling and um, affecting that you're like you're digging so desperately. You want more. Yeah, you want like why the (laughs) fuck are they doing this? You know, I like to think that the kinds of... um, like leaps that our brain made in trying to connect the sounds sure. to the image 
was a good kind of brain power well, we were developing. Well, I mean, it, it like before I said, you know, how, how easy it is to get information now. Yes. That, that you really... You did. You did have to make these associations. You were hungry to find things. Like right. if you uh, had a music magazine or a skateboard magazine yes. or something, you were like, I mean, you were in it. You were trying to get as much out of it as you can, whereas now you just, you're clicking. You're just exactly. moving from one to the next. And so I think there probably is a, a real shift in how people now view anything. Agreed. I mean, it's it was very different. And even when MTV was around, Stuff wasn't on demand. I mean, you would watch. You, you would watch, you watch a lot of stuff minutes. you didn't care so about. One video to get to, like, oh well, there's oh, that. Oh, now yeah. look at this. Yes. You know, and it's uh, it's interesting, like that the um how time was so different then in how we experience things or caught up with things. Yes. Um, but all of a sudden you've got every kid in America watching MTV, and that I've I don't even know what that leads to, but it's a real difference, you know. Absolutely. And you're able to kind of connect with what you want. So now you're, you've got the foundation of art. You've got the foundation of music. You're going to decide to go to college. What, okay. what is that about? <laughs> what is that decision to say, I'm going to go to a place and it's going to be about art? When I was a senior in high school, my best friend at the time, Wells Tower, he is a very, very bright fellow. And I think that I learned about the notion of college through him. Mm-hmm. He was very high achieving, and I and I respected that so much. And so anyway, I actually applied to like five liberal arts schools that had art programs, mm-hmm. and then I applied to RISD. Yeah. And at that time, I had this imperative for for good academics, right. you know. And also, that's just a classic parent thing. Like, sure, yeah. There's not a lot of parents out there being like, "Go to art school," you know. Right. No. No. Luckily, again, my parents are very permissive. But they didn't know much about they didn't know much about art school, so they weren't pushing for me to go to art school. Yeah. I actually applied to art school because my mom's best oldest friend said, "Like, oh, you should apply to this place, um, RISD. I heard it's like the coolest art school ever." Like, and I didn't know, and and then I like found out that like some of the Talking Heads people went there, and like, <laughs> but I didn't like research other art schools. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I so I applied to some liberal art schools and I applied to RISD, mm-hmm. and. I got into like two of the liberal arts schools and I got into RISD. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to make the decision, I didn't know what the fuck to do. <laughs> and Wells just said, you just got into one of the best art schools in the country. If you don't go there, like if, if that's not a sign, I don't know what is. Right. And he, he essentially said, step back from this and look at it. Yeah. And like, my God. It made sense. Yeah. So he, he, he helped me understand that it was time to do that. Yeah. So you get there, is it a a culture shock? It's a huge culture shock. Also just like, I, I don't know that I, I mean, I experienced this in some ways, but it's sort of a, I guess it's a cliche, but like the idea that like, you know, it's all, it's all the people who were the best artists in their school, all in, you know, they're all in the, in the same thing. I also happened to go to RISD and room with my good friend, George Jenny, who we went to high school oh, together, and we that. both got into RISD, and we roomed together. I did not realize that. And George was actually more like the best artist at Chapel Hill High. <laughs> like he had the celebrity status for sure. Really? Yeah. But yeah, it was a major culture shock. Yeah, major. And what are you? What kind of artwork are you making at that point? Great question. Um, I you don't declare your major till sophomore year, beginning of sophomore year. Yeah. Um, at the time of going to RISD, you know, I think it's not 
probably hard to imagine based on what I just told you that I was actually thinking more about illustration because mm-hmm. I was thinking of comics, yeah. record album covers. Like my dad was technically a little more interested in graphic art than in like, you know, art for art's sake, fine art, abstraction. But my dad yeah. wasn't really into abstraction or, you know. And I think that maybe some, I also had some sort of uh, job pressure. Sure. You know, and I didn't understand what an art, you know, there was no artist job. I didn't understand. <laughs> right. I had no context or like no precedent for that. So right. illustration was what I thought I was going to go into. And it was also easy to like tell my parents, friends, I'm like, yeah, like Rizzy's got a great illustration program. Like Chris Van Allsburg, Polar Express, like he teaches there. And they were like, whoa, cool. Right. And right. it Somebody's... all felt very like not risky. Right. You know, with, yeah. with all the risk that is associated with art school. Right. Um, so at that point in time, I was very a lot of drawing, mm-hmm. but to be honest, RISD breaks you down for that first year to the yeah. degree where you're not you're not making anything that's resembling right. something that's your style or expression. Right. It's not till sophomore year that you're even allowed to do anything like that. But yeah. I was doing a shit ton of drawing just because of the curriculum. Yeah. Shit ton of drawing. And on the music side, you mentioned the Talking Heads before. Are they sort of in the air there? I mean, are people thinking about that? Well, I didn't know about RISD having a music scene beyond that. I just thought that like, oh, good. This is like affirming my sense that music and art are connected in some way, but I don't know yeah. what that is. But once I got to RISD, I realized it was a huge music scene there. Yeah. Tons of bands. I was super into hip hop and rap at that time. It was sort of through the culture of Providence that I sort of got back into like indie rock, alternative punk. When do you join Le Savé Five. Okay. While I was in high school, I was in a punk rock band with my two best friends. Hellbender was the band. And when I went to RISD, I was still playing in that band. And so, like, my first few summers of RISD, we would tour. Wow. Le Savé Five started as a band when I was a, like, a junior. Mm -hmm. And I was still in Hellbender. And so Le Savé Five was five guys younger than me at RISD who were, one guy was in my year. The drummer, yeah. actually. And I saw them play at, at RISD. And then, like, when I graduated, they were on tour, and they came and stayed with me and while they played a show in North Carolina and also in Portland, where I lived for a little while. What was your initial thought when you first saw them? When I first saw them at RISD, I thought they were, like, it was so far outside of what I was, like, listening to at the time mm-hmm. that I thought it was, like, so fucking audacious. <laughs> yeah. It was, like... Britpop kind of, you mm-hmm. know, arrogant, cocky, ecstatic rock, right. you know, two guitars, mm-hmm. loud. And like I was in a punk rock band that was, you know, the singer and the, the major songwriter were like really intellectual, like thoughtful, angsty, you know, <laughs> a lot of earnestness. Yeah. And Le Savi Fav was, it was kind of scratching a major itch that I didn't even know I had, I guess, yeah. at a time, in a way. And it right. felt really like, Weird and awesome and new and like cool, but it didn't feel at that time like, oh, that is so. I'm not, I don't know what that is, but I'm into it. But yeah. like, I couldn't, I didn't envision myself and having how, anything to do with that. And how did that happen? I graduated from RISD and moved back to North Carolina, and I was living with Wells Tower in Durham, and I started painting. I got a studio in downtown Durham in the Venable building. Uh-huh. Got this unbelievable, like 1,000 square foot beautiful warehouse studio started painting my ass off and hellbender had broken up but i started listening to a lot of new music as you know i was just like kind of just checking out new stuff I wasn't playing music at all yeah 
and I started listening to the to Le Savi Fav and then like a lot of the records that they because I was friends with those guys and like yeah. some of the stuff they had turned me on to. And I don't know. It was kind of like a little mystical, possibly. Yeah. I actually literally thought to myself, man, I would like to play this kind of music. Like, this is really the kind of music I want to play right now. Yeah. And they just called me. They were like, Pat just left the band. Do you want to move into his bedroom in our loft in Brooklyn and become the drummer? And what did you say? I said, I got to think about it. <laughs> and I you know, had two jobs here mm-hmm. and a studio but otherwise I was unattached like right I was basically like shit how am I gonna do this and like every person in my life was like are you crazy right it's so easy for you to do that yeah so as soon as I realized that it was like stupid to not do it I definitely I j- jumped on it and what kind of art you you said you were painting Did yeah you... I was painting figurative painting I was painting from photographs mm-hmm. photographs that I had taken so I I've always made photographs my whole life, but in a kind of social, casual way. Mm-hmm. Like my dad gave me my first camera when I was five. Hmm. I took a lot of pictures, it turns out. Right. And so I was actually painting a lot from those pictures I took on the playground and right. stuff. And I was like into Hockney and like kind of figurative painters that were like letting it go a little bit, I yeah. guess. And it was the first time I had made art without like a bunch of professors and other like mean that, students that's around a me. hard thing that 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 first moment when you're kind of like i can really do anything yeah. and nobody's gonna unless i want them to nobody's gonna see this or criticize yes. it that's really to develop your own like oh this is what i want to do that's yeah. a hard thing it was it it was really hard to get there but once i got there i really yeah i made a lot of work in a couple of years i got good at what i was doing i think yeah and I had like a few little shows at like bars in, in Chapel Hill, you know. Yeah. And when I left Durham and moved to New York, I kept doing that a little bit. But something really major changed in my art as well when I left and, and joined the band. And um, it was interesting, kind of like I was also coming back into a more critical environment, right? Sure. Like I, was, I had been in Durham. There wasn't any critical discussion about anything. Right. And in some ways, I was taking advantage of that, and like just really, like you said, just that like could be good. Free. Yeah, yeah. So the the first things I ever saw, they were they were photographs that you had cut out and kind mm. of pieced together. Some of them were like a car leading to a thing over here, and then and then also the sort of mountainous green mm. thing. So so when do you? So at some point you you're like, well, I'm starting these things with a photograph. Yeah, and then I'm changing it. Why, when did you say, well, I'm making photographs? I mean, Yeah, that's a good question. Well, one thing to point out is that when I moved back from RISD to North Carolina, that was when I first saw like Eggleston and William Christenberry. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard Vic Chestnut and when I first read Walker Percy, and it was the first time in which I had experienced art that was about Southern identity that wasn't lame or disgusting or racist or (laughs) right it's hard to find that it is because when i was at risd i wasn't like oh i'm a southern boy you know like people would be like oh you're from chapel hill like you must be this or you must be that or like why don't you have a southern accent like i wasn't trying to i wasn't interested in my southern identity at all yeah i don't think i've never been embarrassed or ashamed of it by any means but like 
when I got back from RISD and like you said, making art in a totally free environment, I had to kind of be like, who the fuck am I? You yeah. know, like, where is this coming from? And I think seeing artists like that give me a kind of um, precedent for meaningful work that was coming out of an experience that I could relate to. Right. And so this is sort of jumping around in time, but you mentioned the kudzu and the collages. Those photographs that I cut up and, and reassembled as as photo collages were actually the exact same photographs I had been painting from the whole time. Yeah. I just had this big giant box of prints I had made at like CVS or whatever, you yeah. know, and I was hacking them up. And, you know, I think at a certain point I needed to make a shift in my work because I just, it's an art school thing, I guess, you know, this, this compulsion to shake things up and right. to reinvent and to question. And, and I don't necessarily it's a bit of a, a disease in some ways, you know, like I've always in, envied artists that are just perpetual. Right. You know, that don't question, that just kind of make in that space you that you just described. I understand the, the, the sort of envy of that, but yeah. I also, um, I, mean, I know if, if you're a painter from, yes. from forever, when right. there are changes that take place. You are sort of changing within perhaps a more narrow context or whatever. Right. But, um, I don't think I could, I mean, I, I think whatever I'm after is something different than that. Yeah. And I think probably you're the same way. I mean, yes. I, I don't think you would be satisfied doing the right. working in a certain way because I mean, like when I look at your work, like I said, those were the first things I'm familiar with, but now that I've got to know you, I sort of more recognize the combination of music and art. And I think you've maybe those have fused together more and more over time. But um, last year at Sika, you did the performance that was based on the drum beat from Billie Jean, which you said was the first thing you'd learned. Yeah. Uh, but that's in an art context. And, but you're, it's still music. How do you kind of reconcile that? Or do you even try Oh, I've that. tried. Uh, yeah, I am trying. I've, I tried <clears throat> in a very, in a very big way. But um, yeah. So that you know that would be. I guess that's sort of like the next major shift in the work is to is to question the visual or to question the flatness of a two dimensional thing and yeah. and question, and and also I guess for the most part questioning content. You know, mm -hmm. questioning like where are the images coming from mm -hmm. and are they. Are they worthwhile? Can I be held with them? Do they stand for me? Are right. they important? And so, the, you know, that's when it's sort of like the, where the music and art thing really, really came to a head for me. Mm -hmm. it, just to realize that I had been partitioning those things so acutely for so long. Right. And I didn't know why, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it just became a kind of curiosity to see like, how, the, how could they inform each other in a much more literal and evident way rather than to say like, when someone asks me like about what I'm up to, like, oh, I'm you know I'm an artist, but I also make all yeah. music. I guess a lot of times people will be like, I had no idea you made music. That's so weird. I thought you were only this one thing. And yeah. like, what? You also make art? I had no idea that you were just a drummer. So right. yeah. And 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 you know, just also thinking about what you and I were talking about is like the degree to which the fusion of image and sound was really the thing that got me excited about being a you know, an artist to begin with. Right. We're going to take a little break, Harrison, and Sounds we're going to come right back. Yes. Are you tired of being bullied by your peers? Always being told you'll never be number one, no matter how successful or popular you become? Do they make fun of your name? 
Welcome to the world of the number two pencil. That's right, people still use them. We're the Dignity Restoration via Name Change Council, or the Dignity Restoration by Name Change Council for short. Either one's fine. We don't really care. Enough is enough. We don't call winners losers. So why is the number one selling pencil in the world cursed with the name number two? It doesn't make sense. Number two is something your kid just did in his pants. Granted, he also does number one in his pants, which isn't cool either, but it doesn't cause emotional scarring. Bottom line, you shouldn't leave pencils lying around while changing diapers. It's just bad parenting. The number two pencil, it's number one. It has an eraser. Hey everybody, it's time to get off your ass and go look at some art. And here's some of the things you might want to check out. Get on down to 21C Museum Hotel Durham to check out the show Forms and Functions, featuring work by Gina Valentine and Jaden Moore. You can find out more at 21cmuseumhotels.com slash Durham. Hey there, Kelly. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm real good. <laughs> what's, go what's going on down there at Bump? Well, we have, um, for this uh, July, we have two exhibits that we're pretty proud of. They're going to be curated by our two interns, Anthony Hamilton and Connor Calhoun. And uh, we had this idea, we're calling it Show Off, um, and the idea was kind of a curator versus curator. I shouldn't say this because nobody likes this, but I, I wanted to call it Curator Wars. Instead, we're calling it Show Off. And... Uh, <laughs> I will say as a caveat, they only had about a month to start planning this. And at the beginning, and this was before we, we realized we got that Warhol grant, they had absolutely no money to work with. And so they, they have really um, scrambled to pull together great exhibits on on nothing with very little time. Mm -hmm. But uh, Anthony Hamilton, is his show is called Digiscapes, and he's going to be uh, working with Ben Alper, Andy Berner. Uh, Joy Drury Cox, Isis Hinegar, Peter Hoffman, Lisa Iglesias, Carolyn Jansen, Eric Juth, Joy Mayer, Jason Mitchum, Paul Travis Phillips, Sidney Steen, and Leanne Trung. Oh, you got some heavy hitters up in there. Yeah, he sure does. All right. I'm excited for you that. You can do that with no money? No, no, we, we have a little bit now, just a little bit. <laughs> Very nice. And what are the dates for that? So it opens on July 7th, um, and it'll run until, um, I believe it's uh, July 28th. And so Connor shows at the same time. Yes. So Anthony will be on one side, and then Connor is going to be showing his exhibition, which is called Waves to Live By. And he's going to be working with artists uh, Liz, uh, and I'm totally going to mispronounce some of these artists because I don't know them. I'm sorry. Liz Thabit, Sean St. Lucas, Doris Guo. G-U-O. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, Rachel uh, Zaretsky, Logan Britt, Julia Santoli, Julia Studdard, Ted Anderson, and Austin Kasky. Mm. And I think, and it's a maybe, but if you come in, your butt might get wet on that one. Oh, well, I'm hoping so. <laughs> and I so, don't know what that means, but I like I it. I don't know either, but I think we could probably um, thank Julia Studdard for that. Mm -hmm. But those exhibits are going to be going on at the same time. Um, I'm working with uh, both Bill Thielen and Houston Pascal on drafting kind of a, a guide for viewers. So they're, it's kind of a scorecard and a guide, but they will be choosing the winner, um, which show wins. And, and we will guide them through with the right questions, but um, it is well, a bit of a competition. Does the winner get something? 
Yes, but we don't know what yet. But something. In my mind, what I would love is that the winner uh, comes back the following year to face off against a new curator. Ooh, that's like Iron Chef or something. I know. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Am I going to um, to Bravo TV on this? <laughs> There's no such thing. We're trying to get, um, I guess, more viewer participation and more people interested. And I think um, in a playful way, but I think by adding some sort of element of competition, that could help. That's pretty fun. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kelly. Thank you. I appreciate it. We're back in with Harrison Haynes. Mm, I'm chewing grapes. That's good. That's what you should be doing. So at this point, you're in New York. You're in the band. The visual art's changing a little bit. And at some point, then you move down to North Carolina again. Why that move? Hmm. So I moved to New York in 1999. I left New York in 2004. A lot happened in that period. Chloe and I, who got together at that time and were living together, it might be safe to say that we were both feeling creatively hampered in New York City. I made some art that I think is really good art while I was there, but I didn't make a lot of it. I mean, the band was a huge job. Yeah. And it required me to be all in. I was dedicating a lot of time and energy to the band, and I wasn't finding a lot of time to make art in a way that I thought was meaningful. It's a very intimidating place to be as right. an artist, obviously. I didn't really like get a lot of footholds artistically while I was there. So when y'all moved back to North Carolina, how quickly did y'all start Branch? Was that, in, were you, you guys already thinking like, we should do this, or did that kind of come along? Well, I'll say that Branch, for the most part, is Chloe's baby, but I supported it and helped her with it in, in major ways. But, um, she started Branch Gallery in our apartment in New York City, actually. Yeah. yeah. So Chloe was at RISD with with me and the guys in my band and Patrick Zung and Amanda Barr and all kinds of other people that you mm-hmm. may know. She studied film. She was primarily interested in documentary film. And when she got out of RISD, she worked on documentary film and um, did some editing and did some filmmaking of her own. And she was making a documentary called Painting, in 2000 and she was self-funding and producing the film and it had like six different painters in New York that were the subjects of the film. She asked each of the artists that were the subjects of the film to give a piece to auction Uh as a fundraiser for the film and so she cleaned our whole apartment out and painted all the walls white and made it into a gallery for this fundraiser party. That became much more interesting to her than the film in, in, in the end. Yeah. Um, she loved so much the experience of curating and mounting that exhibition. Right. And it's, it's so funny. It was just like the attention she got for that as an exhibition was actually far so so people exceeded the, the attention she got for the film. And so she essentially segued. I mean, she essentially, that was like an epiphany for her. Right. Um, so, so then she did another show, but a, a more, a proper, more filled out, like a larger group show in our in our apartment mm-hmm. <laughs> it's called anima botanica was the name of the group show <laughs> so our apartment was like a gallery for a little while like it was a by appointment only obviously and so we would get like a call and like jeffrey deitch wanted to come see it one day <laughs> and like other you know other people of note wanted to come see the show and she sold a lot of the work and and it was just it was working but then it was kind of like quickly apparent that to continue doing that in our apartment might not be tenable. Yeah. And to move to a more legitimate 
manifestation of a gallery would require some serious capital. Right. That probably began a conversation about where she could open a gallery that wasn't in New York. It wasn't like a very easy existence. I mean, it was a lovely, fun, creative, fucking awesome existence, but it was like, we weren't getting a lot of sleep. We weren't making a ton of money. Yeah. um, And it was New York. Mm -hmm. So I think it's pretty inevitable that, you know, conversations about like, where could we have a better quality of life started to happen. Right. And she came home with me for Christmas and we were driving through Carborough and there was a building for sale for like nothing. Yeah. You know? And so that it was just like, this could be something that we actually do. Right. And in that year, we moved to North Carolina from New York City. She started Branch Gallery in Carborough, and we got married. Um, that's a, that's so all a busy those, year. All those things, yeah. When you first got to Branch, I mean, I know through the history of Branch, you showed people from all over. It yeah. wasn't just North Carolina. But what were the artists when you first got there? Were they mostly New York artists still, or kind of a mix, or what was going on with that? RISD was a major point of convergence. Like sort of RISD in New York cult, like community yeah. was pretty big. So, um, you know, Melissa Brown is a really awesome artist that we went to RISD with, who was one of the first artists that Chloe showed. Josh Abelow was an r- artist who went to RISD that Chloe showed his work. So, yes, yeah, some New York RISD artists. But then, you know, yeah. as soon as she opened the gallery, it was like every artist poured out of the woodwork. <laughs> sure. For better and for worse, right. obviously. But, yeah, it wasn't long before artists in this area that were that got it. Or, you know, I mean, I, yeah. I guess there's a particular kind of vibe of her gallery in some ways and the work that she was showing. But so, yeah, it was a combination of local artists. And I think that was became quickly one of her sort of like points of her mission is to sort of like, you know, bring artists from elsewhere to here and to put artists from here on a stage with artists from elsewhere in order to kind of like elevate everyone sure. and to kind of bring this area more stuff. So she was also invited to join NADA, the New Art Dealers Alliance, and mm-hmm. to go to Miami to have a booth at the NADA Fair as this ga- gallery in Carborough, which was a pretty m- crazy thing. Sure. And, you know, we go to Miami and we mount our little show in our booth and it's like we're surrounded by all these giant galleries and we're like, so what do you guys have? And like, oh, we just moved into this like 3,000 beautiful square foot space in Chelsea. And like, I think Chloe is a little bit like, I want to like, I want to make it big. I want to do that. So when when was the uh, move to Durham? So the first branch gallery space was this little mill house in Carborough. And, you know, you want to change you want to change it up. Right. You know, you want to make it bigger. You want to do something. I think Chloe's a very ambitious person. And so um, Durham was a ways off from from the wheels turning to where it is now. But there was a lot of speculators and developers at that time. Sure. It was, um, Andy Rothschild approached Chloe and said, I've got this commercial property in downtown and I'd love for you to be the anchor tenant. And we went to look at it. It was a 3,000 square foot ex Studebaker it's be- showroom. It was beautiful. We were like, hell yes. <laughs> yes, this sounds really good. But it was a tall order. I mean, it was a, it was a massive increase in rent and yeah. it was a lot more responsibility but Chloe wanted to step it up, and I, you know, I thought it was incredible. So, um, and at that point, the gallery became more like a kind of self-sustaining business, mm-hmm. I guess. I was hanging all the shows, and yeah. I was doing all the things, like not unlike what you've done at many, right. many fine institutions. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I was still touring with Lesavi Five PS. Right. So when I wasn't touring with Lesavi Five, I was working with Chloe, and then 
Trevor got hired at the Nasher. He moved down. His mm-hmm. wife had been a director at Sikkim and Jenkins and was looking for a job. Right. Um, she came and visited Branch and Chloe, and you know, it seemed like a great thing to do. Is just like with the expansion of Branch to bring on a new right. co-director, and so Tika brought artists that we Chloe didn't know prior to the program, and yeah, um, got mixed it all up. I mean, it was. Uh... Obviously, the void that was left after that has never <laughs> been filled in the area. When uh, you showed at at Sika as yeah. part of the fellowship show, yes, there was a lot of real obvious imagery related to music. I mean, you had the the symbols and other things, and at some point along the way, also you began to photograph an object, print it, and then cut out the object. So it's like this flat but still a flattened version of an, an actual <laughs> object. What What is the thinking behind that? You had some of that in the Sika show. I just yeah. think it's it's cool. I've, I'm lucky enough to have one of the T-shirts. And so, uh, yeah, just what what is that all about? Um, I think it's a little bit of a restlessness with flatness, mm-hmm. you know, questioning back to that kind of scrutiny that we talked about. Yeah. Um, you know, photography is something that kind of, inspires me but also makes me uneasy in some ways the mm-hmm. the 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 homogeny of the flat surface of it yeah you know the the lack of tactility mm-hmm. you know as someone who who studied and practiced painting for a long time um i mean i came to be excited by photography for a lot of very legitimate reasons and and i still am every day but somewhere in my involvement with photography is a little bit of of restlessness. Yeah. And so I think that grew very organically out of out of the the question of flat, you know, what does it mean to make a thing that is not a thing, right. you know? Sure. To make a flat thing and like what would it mean to to try to make it to like <laughs> to like in a futile way to try to make <laughs> right. the, the the flat thing a thing. Right. Um I do love the the trompe-l'oeil experience of those things. Yeah. You know, of those not thing things like right. um I, I do have some very earnest love of the magic of photography, mm-hmm. of the of the illusory or illusionistic space of photography. Yeah, but I also think that it was a little bit about identifying objects that were meaningful. Yeah, and so then it, you know it wasn't enough just to photograph them, but then how do you isolate them? Like have them announce themselves even more than just being in the picture plane, right. but to then pop out of the picture plane a little bit. And I think collage is always something that I've done. So the the, the impulse to cut something out is just in me. That kind of leads me to what I've seen most recently, and that is the sort of stacked images based on sort of uh, the multiplane camera, which also leads back to perhaps what your dad used to teach or I don't think he teaches anymore. Is that great? So he used to teach animation and and a huge step in the animation process was the multiplane camera. And it's something that I've always been kind of mesmerized, but I think it's something that still could, there's, there's a lot of possibilities there. And, and I remember seeing like um, these works that you made that were, you had made something like a multiplane camera but you had photographed it sort of from the side. Like I could see the stacks of glass right. um, versus now you're, you're using it more, I think as in the style of like Disney or something yes. like that, where you're, you're looking down on all these layers and 
there's like this confusion of like what's foreground and so so when did you when was that a conscious thing like oh my dad was in the or or how did you get to to start to use that as a sort of device my first year of grad school at the bard um mfa program which is a summer low residency program not to be confused with bard undergraduate or the bard icp program so but um a really specific program that had a massive massive uh impact on my practice and my thinking as an artist but I went to grad school to lay myself bare and to build it all back up. And my first year of grad school, I was doing just that. I didn't know what the fuck I was going to make. I was given a studio that wasn't a studio. It yeah. was kind of like in office space where the guy gets like the, <laughs> the you know, the boiler room is yeah. his office or whatever. Like, I think they ran out of studios. And so that, oh, it's Harrison. What are we going to do <laughs> to that guy? Yeah. Oh, wait, you're enrolled here too. No, to their credit, it wasn't. Yeah, they have a space issue. They have an few space. So they basically mm-hmm. like, you can have this studio, which was like a dorm room, which was like 20 square feet. Or they're like, there is this other weird room that no one's using. And so I chose this other weird room that no one was using. And what it, the room was, was sort of a storage space for the photo department of uh-huh. undergrad, right. which was vacated for the summer. And in that room was a copy stand. I wasn't thinking about it at all at the time, but the copy stand for me is so tied to my childhood because my dad made his animation on an Oxberry and an Oxberry is essentially a copy stand for a 16 millimeter film camera. Mm-hmm. And my dad made his own Oxberry, but it, it's like a, a thing where the camera is mounted on a adjustable height bracket that can be lowered and raised and is pointing down at a flat plane so that you can photograph cells for animation. Right. At that time, I wasn't really thinking about the connection, but the copy, something about the copy stand was lit something up in me. And uh-huh. I started... I mounted the camera to the copy stand and I started photographing things on the copy stand. And then from there, I started thinking about, I don't know how I got the idea, but it's there's no way I didn't think about subconsciously multiplanar. But yeah. I bought a bunch of sheets of glass and I stacked them up and I actually separated them with um, plastic like cocktail cups that I bought <laughs> at the grocery store. And I was just getting scrappy. You know right. what I mean? I was just like- <laughs> I got to see what this does. Yeah. Yeah. And so I made this apparatus of stacked things. And my idea was to like put printed photographs that were cut out like collage on different layers and see if I could make a kind of collage out of that physical depth of field. While I was doing it, I was sort of torn between this thing of photographing it as an apparatus or photographing it in the apparatus so that the illusion is created. For my first review, and and just so you know, the rev- when you have a review at Bard, it's horrifying oh, because sure. it's all 80 students of all six disciplines in one room, and you're standing in front of them. Ooh, that, that's and you ha- exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and they can ask you whatever you want, and you're not allowed to talk. Wow. And it's, it's, it's hardcore. Yeah. And so um, one of the greatest, most valuable possessions is a transcript of that crit that uh-huh. my friend typed like you know, stenographer style, right? Um, that I that I want to do something with one day, you know. But anyway, um, the the main thing that was happening during that crit is like people that thought um, that the exposure of the apparatus was the most interesting thing, and people that thought the exposure of the apparatus was the was the worst thing, right? And that was exactly what I was wrestling with: is like, what the fuck does it mean to do this stuff? And am I interested in the illusion, or am I interested in the revelation of this thing as an object? And it's yeah. funny you talk about sculpture because I was making sculpture in a lot of ways, sure, right? Yeah. yeah. 
this year I'm curating the MFA show at UNC. Wow, so congratulations. It's really fun. I didn't know that. It's been so fun so far. <laughs> but you see that sort of wrestling with yourself. You you have those internal uh, debates and then you have a crit and it's like you hear them out loud and at some point you've got to be like, I'm going to listen to I this know. over here and not that, at least for now. Right. And it, it's... Uh, it's I don't know how you making. make those decisions, but but both can be obviously perfectly valid. Yes. You've done the ones where you're looking at yeah. the side. You can see the apparatus. You can see the layers of glass. Yeah. And now the most recent things I've seen are sort of what you were talking about before, the the illusion, the the layers. Yes. What's in focus, what's sort of foreground versus background. Yeah. And uh, how are those made? The way that this new body of work came about was because I started teaching darkroom photography. And darkroom photography was something I had actually never done before. I went to grad school for photography, but I never studied darkroom photography at that time. I had actually never really set foot in a darkroom prior to getting this job. Um, so when I got the job, I knew I needed to figure it out. Right. I understood the principles of it. And thanks to Leah Sobsey, actually, who I called in a panic, uh, <laughs> you know, she walked me through it and gave me the basics. And luckily, I had a year... Uh, my first year, I didn't teach darkroom. So my first year of teaching, I, you know, when I wasn't teaching, I was doing trial and error in the darkroom by myself. Yeah. Um, so basically, through my own investigation of the darkroom through teaching, I started be to become really interested in photograms. And so th this new body of work is essentially combining my interest in photograms with a kind of pre-existing technology I invented in grad school. Well, not invented, but, you know, came across or, yeah. or you know put together, yeah. which is this multiplanar thing. And again, yeah, animation is like a huge um, precedent there, but I wasn't real, I wasn't making time-based media. I was sure. making still images. But anyway, I built a new multiplanar thing, which was basically more invested in legit, um, but still <laughs> Stable. I bought everything I needed. I, it was all from Lowe's, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, yeah, this, so this body of work is very much taken, um, you know, is using the apparatus to create the illusion and not so much um, to, to not to talk about the process. But it's funny, because when I showed them, I was faced with this really urgent impulse to explain right. the process. Well, when you see them, or as the viewer, I was like, what, what, how is this happening? <laughs> like, I think the impulse as the viewer is to say, how, how are you doing this? Because it, it does sort of question these things. I mean, it doesn't... It doesn't look like a collage, and it doesn't look like a flat image. It it looks like this kind of uh, combination of them, which is really neat. Well, I do think that I'm not really like um, a you know analog or digital polarity kind of guy. Yeah. Like I think I love them both, and they do they have their own things about yeah. them that are important and um and unique. But I do think that like the way that physical space is represented through analog processes mm. via depth of field, especially when you're making a photogram, right. has a tactility. And it's not, it, it isn't the tactility of, of real tactility, right? We're still right. talking about a flat thing. Yeah. But it has something that's different than a digital space. Yeah, oh, sure. And so running the multiplanar system through a like a, um, a glass lens based light based process, yeah. um, and the depth of field, 
the shallow depth of field that's created by that um, just has this particular kind of, um, I guess it, it, tactility isn't really accurate because it isn't, it doesn't feel any different, but maybe it's like um, a visual comprehension of space or yeah. something like that. Very cool. Well, thank you, Harrison, for joining us. You're so welcome. I, it was my pleasure. Real Kitty Kitty Litter is the first and only all-in-one pet kit. Are you tired of having to make two trips to rescue a new cat? We thought so. First, you have to drive all the way to the shelter and then off to the pet store. To hell with that. Real Kitty Kitty Litter comes with a free kitten in every box. You're welcome. Hurry now while supplies last. Seriously, hurry. Real Kitty Kitty Litter. Meow. Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh. Bless their hearts. This doesn't mean that they give us money, but it does allow us to accept tax-deductible donations to help us keep this podcast on life support. We have big plans for this podcast, so any amount that you can contribute will go a long way in helping us get there. It's pretty damn easy, too. Go to DontYouLieToMe.com and click on the Sponsors page. Are you tired of using those trendy dry erase boards? We thought so. Maybe it's time to reacquaint yourself with chalk. It's not just for outlining dead bodies anymore. You can write words or even sentences. You can draw pie charts or pie equations, even pie recipes. Oh, and you could take it a step further too. You can draw pictures of your freshly baked pies. Chalk, that's right, chalk. Ever try to draw on a sidewalk with a dry erase marker? It doesn't work. Hey, dry erase markers, it's chalk calling. Eat our dust. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our previous episodes. You can find them on our website, don'tyoulietome.com, or wherever you found this one. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, you can help us out by subscribing and leaving a comment and or rating us on iTunes. All of these things make a huge difference in helping us receive higher rankings, which helps us gain sponsors. You guys are amazing. Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c nonprofit creativity incubator. You can find out more about them at vaeraleigh.com. We'd also like to thank Matt McMichaels for the use of his studio, Trusty Woods. Our theme song was written by our own Warren Hicks, and our logo design was created by Artsy Martha. Don't forget to check out our website at DontYouLieToMe.com. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and tell your friends and family to listen as well.